Welcome to another mini-episode of Let's Talk 10. I'm Dan Fisher. Today, we're returning to a parallel universe, one in which I am master of time and all of its consequences. But it's a very specific universe. My powers are extremely limited and actually rather trivial. Here, it is not the voting members of the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences who decide which movies and actors are worthy to be designated as the best of their respective years. In my self-created parallel universe, I alone make those selections. I alone possess the ability to correct any of the Academy's injustices as I see fit. Listen. If you're going to create and host your own podcast, you have to have a bit of an ego. I'd say it comes with the territory. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. I think she's got it. I think she's in my universe, My Fair Lady did not win 1964's Best Picture. It was A Hard Day's Night, starring the Beatles who also took home Grammy's Album of the Year for its soundtrack. For 1972, I have Al Pacino winning Best Actor for The Godfather, while Marlon Brando took home the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. And I have Sigourney Weaver winning at least one Best Actress Award for her portrayal of Ellen Ripley in the Alien movies. Get away from her, you bitch! As has been brought up plenty of times throughout this podcast, and certainly will come up again, I consider the idea of best anything to be ridiculous. I'll be the first to admit that some of my favorite movies, TV shows, and songs aren't necessarily the best. They might be intentionally light or silly, or maybe they're flawed in some way. But if they've engaged me, if I still think about them or rewatch them decades after their original releases, That's all that matters. Who cares what the Academy or the critics or the box office tells us? If you were to insist that Howard the Duck has always been a misunderstood classic, you'd get no argument from me. No more Mr. Nice Duck. But the Academy Awards will always exist in my parallel universe. As a certifiable Oscar fanatic, I wouldn't have it any other way. As long as the Academy's choices more or less reflect my own. Omnipotence has its privileges. The 1970s has been rightfully lauded as one of the peak eras for cinema. Post Easy Rider, the studios had yielded at least some creative control to young filmmakers like Friedkin, Bogdanovich, Coppola, Ashby, Lucas, Spielberg, and Scorsese. By the 1980s, after the failures of auteur-driven epics like Sorcerer, New York, New York, and Heaven's Gate, the executives had begun to grab hold of the reins again. But great movies were still being made, and in 1982, There happened to be a lot of them. Here are some of the films released that year that were not nominated for Best Picture by the Academy, but in my opinion, at least deserved consideration. An Officer and a Gentleman. 
I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Blade Runner. I guess uh, you don't know where Mr. Chan is. I haven't seen him for the past week. Chan is missing. Das Boot. Diner. Say the words. I want the roast beef sandwich. Say the words and I'll give you a piece. Fitzcarraldo. Francis. Poyanis Kotsky. My favorite year. There is no pain you are Pink Floyd, The Wall. Hello. Poltergeist. They're here. God damn it! Richard Pryor, live on the Sunset Strip. Everything will be Shoot the moon. Well, you're not at this house anymore, George. Remember, you walked out feet first. Sophie's Choice. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Khan! Khan! The Thing. and the world according to Garp. For the 55th Annual Academy Awards. On April 11th, 1983, inside of the real-world Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, 24 Oscars were handed out to filmmakers, actors, craftspeople, and technicians. Like the previous Parallel Universe mini-episode, I'm going to limit my focus to just the three biggies, actor, actress, and picture. The real-world nominees for Best Actor that year were... Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie. Ben Kingsley in Gandhi. Jack Lemmon in Missing. Paul Newman in The Verdict. Peter O'Toole in My Favorite Year. And the winner is Ben Kingsley and Gandhi. All five of these men were indisputably gifted actors, among the best of their generations. It would seem an act of heresy for me to remove a single name from this list, but I am removing a single name, Jack Lemmon. He's one of my all-time favorite actors, a marvel of versatility and professionalism, and he was fine and missing. I don't want to hear any of your anti-establishment paranoia. If you had stayed where you belong and paid a little attention to the basics, this never would have happened. By that point, he'd already won two well-deserved Oscars, so he certainly didn't need a parallel universe one from me. So I'm nominating a dynamic young actor in his film debut, one of the most gifted and charismatic talents to have graced a movie screen in years, Eddie Murphy who absolutely stole 48 hours away from his co-star, Nick Nolte. What the hell kind of cop are you? 
You know what I am? I'm your worst fucking nightmare, man. I'm a nigga with a badge. That means I got permission to kick your fucking ass whenever I feel like it. Otherwise, my nominees for Best Actor remain the same as the Academy's. Dustin Hoffman for Tootsie. For I am not Emily Kimberly. No, I'm not. I'm Edward Kimberly, the reckless brother of my sister Anthea. <laughs> ben Kingsley for Gandhi. We think it is time you recognized that you are masters in someone else's home. Paul Newman for The Verdict. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. But I'm adding a kicker, an additional nomination, a sixth wildcard spot for a performance that does not fit into the Academy's traditional definition of a performance by a leading actor, but one that I believe merits recognition. Richard Pryor, in Richard Pryor, live on the Sunset Strip. And you see a lion in the jungle, that's what they look like, lions. Motherfucker be in the bush, dumbass. Yeah, get your ass out the car. For one hour and 22 minutes, it's just Richard on a stage embodying dozens of characters, mobsters, African jungle animals, a sentient crack pipe, and the most complex character of them all, Richard Pryor, revisiting his rocky relationships with women, his various addictions, and most memorably, the night he accidentally set himself on fire while freebasing cocaine. Well, I'll tell you one thing, man. When that fire hits your ass, that will sober your ass up quick. I mean, I was standing there on fire and some said, Why, that's so pretty blue. <laughs> you know what? That looks like fire! <laughs> it was a part that nobody else could have played, and he was amazing. But I'm giving the 1982 Best Actor Oscar to Peter O'Toole for my favorite year. In the real world, this was O'Toole's seventh nomination without a win. He would be nominated once more after that, plus he'd receive an honorary Lifetime Body of Work Oscar in 2002. I'm not above giving out awards for sentimental reasons. I already did that in the Parallel Universe 1994 mini when Paul Newman won for Nobody's Fool. And because I did that, I couldn't then give Newman the Oscar for the verdict even though he was brilliant in it, because that would disrupt my already shaky, imaginary time continuum. But Peter O'Toole was also brilliant in my favorite year, as the once swashbuckling, now alcohol-sodden Errol Flynn archetype Alan Swan. O'Toole brought the grandeur, the physicality, the expert comic timing, and the humanity to a part that, again, nobody else could have played. I'm not an actor, I'm a movie star! Oscar rarely rewards comic performances. This was a great one, from a true screen legend. For Best Actress, the Academy's nominees were... Julie Andrews in Victor Vittoria. <laughs> Jessica Lange in Francis. Sissy Spacek in Missy. Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice. Deborah Winger. 
Once more, it would be difficult to argue against any of the real-world nominees. But I'm taking Julie Andrews off my list because I never thought Victoria's cross-dressing as a man, cross-dressing as a woman, was especially convincing. Like many movies whose plots hinge on characters disguising their genders, if we see too easily through their disguise, we have to wonder why the other characters don't, which makes them convenient to the plot idiots. I think it's as simple as you're one kind of man, I'm another. I know Victor Victoria has a lot of fans. I have to confess, I'm not one of them. So I'm giving Julie's spot to Diane Keaton for Shoot the Moon, an imperfect but devastating underseen examination of a couple going through divorce. I was never right for you, was I, George? It was like I sang all the music, but I never knew the words. I totally buy Keaton and Albert Finney as a married but no longer compatible couple. Plus, Keaton's naturalism, which can sometimes seem ticky and annoying, works very well here, especially in scenes with the young women who play her daughters. Why did Daddy leave us? Well, I don't think he left you. I think he left me. The rest of my nominations agree with Oscars. Jessica Lang for Francis. I haven't got a lawyer. What I want to know is if I got any civil rights. Have I got any civil rights? Sissy Spacek for Missing. You know damn well he's not in hiding. Our whole neighborhood so I'm picked up by a goon squad. And Deborah Winger for An Officer and a Gentleman. I love you. I've loved you since I met you. Don't you understand? Lang was a revelation as Francis Farmer while Spacek and Winger are two of my all-time favorite actresses. Like before, I'm adding a kicker nomination for a performance that the Academy would never, not in a million years, consider in a weird little movie that most of them had probably not bothered to see, but that I genuinely love as I do the performance by its leading lady, who also had a major supporting part cross-dressing as a man. Anne Carlyle in Liquid Sky. I was taught that my prince would come and he would be a lawyer and I would have his children and on the weekends we would barbecue and all the other princes and their princesses would come and they would say delicious, delicious. Oh, how boring. But here I have to agree with the Academy. The best performance by an actress in a motion picture released that year? Marvelous Meryl Streep. For almost 50 years, it's been a given that Meryl Streep is our greatest living actress. With the inevitable critical backlash and sniping that her performances are principally about accents. I disagree, especially regarding the accents. Streep's gift has always been about transformation in whatever form that requires, with a willingness to commit to every moment truthfully, creatively, and without vanity. Sophie was an early peak for her, a difficult part. Not just the accent and speaking much of her dialogue in Polish, but the sheer variety of emotions she had to access as William Styron's tempestuous title character. You're entitled to think differently, but I think she was astonishing. So I, for one, believe that the Academy gave the award to the right actress that evening. Ich 
Now, we're at that point in the show where the home audience is begging for us to wrap things up so that they can get in a few hours of sleep before having to get up for work. So here we are. The best motion picture of 1982. I'll say it one more time. That was an extraordinary year to be a moviegoer. I remember it well, as I had just graduated from high school and had begun my first year of college. Between all of the other activities that one does during that time, with every spare chance I got, I was in a movie theater. Especially considering all of the choices and genres to choose from, I had no idea how lucky we all were then, and that moviegoing would not always be like this. The Academy's nominees for Best Picture of 1982 were... E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Gandhi. Missy. Tootsie. The Verdict. Not a bad one in the bunch. I've seen most of these films a number of times and enjoyed every one of them even the nearly three-and-a-half-hour Gandhi, which I pretty much revered when it came out, but now recognize as the self-important Oscar bait that the Academy eats up with a spoon. So even though it won Best Picture for that year, I'm taking it off the list. I'm also taking away Missing's Best Picture nomination. I remember liking it when I first saw it in a theater, but I don't think I've ever had a desire to watch it again, and I'm not sure if I ever will. I am keeping both Tootsie and The Verdict. They're both terrific, even if some of Tootsie's ideas on gender identity and relationships between men and women have not aged well. And The Verdict's verdict is legally ridiculous and would get tossed out of any appeals court. But they're both expertly crafted movies that I still have no problem admitting to enjoying thoroughly. So they remain nominated in the parallel universe. If Tootsie proved that the Academy would at least nominate a comedy, there's no reason that my favorite year shouldn't be on that list, too. A nostalgic remembrance of live television and your show of shows? It's sweet, romantic, hilarious, and heartfelt. Richard Benjamin would never make a better film. And because I've always been a sucker for a well-made romantic film... My other nomination goes to An Officer and a Gentleman, starring Richard Gere and Deborah Winger. Yes, it's a popcorn flick, but unlike Top Gun, which would capitalize on its storyline and success just a year later, it's not slick, and there is real depth to the characters. Even though Gere and Winger reportedly despised each other, their romantic and sexual chemistry is through the roof. And Deborah Winger especially deserves praise for taking what could have been the obligatory girlfriend part and inhabiting it with dimension and honesty, while Lou Gossett Jr. received the recognition that had long been his due. Since we've had kicker bonus nominations for actor and actress, here's mine for Best Picture. Fitzcarraldo, Werner Herzog's epic tale of a man so obsessed with bringing an opera house to a small Peruvian city 
that he hatches an insane plan to haul a massive boat over a mountain range in order to build it. It's a wild, intellectually stimulating and visually stunning adventure, one that spawned its own classic making-of documentary, Burden of Dreams. But my Parallel Universe Oscar for the Best Motion Picture of 1982 goes to... E.T., The Extraterrestrial. It was not necessary for the Academy to wait for Steven Spielberg to finally make his serious movie, 1993's Schindler's List. E.T. was easily the movie of the year, a Wizard of Oz for a new generation of moviegoers, young and old. This was a very personal story for Spielberg, still only 36 at the time as much about the imagination and vulnerability of children as it was about aliens and spaceships. It would be, for a few years, the all-time box office champ, but E.T.'s success was by no means preordained. Columbia Pictures, doubting its commercial potential, passed on it, as did Mars's M&Ms, to the benefit of their competitors, Universal Pictures and Reese's Pieces, respectively. Those were still the days when a popular movie could be held over in a theater for months, even past a calendar year, if the audiences continued to line up to purchase tickets. And they did, because they still wished to experience those feelings over and over again, to empathize with Elliot's loneliness, to laugh when E.T. discovered the joys of beer, to thrill at flying bicycles, to marvel at the extraordinary performances of the young actors, and to cry, unashamedly, at the apparent death, then Christ-like resurrection, of a mechanical puppet made of steel rods and rubber skin, with a glowing red finger and the promise that someday he'd return. The orchestra's playing me off. I'd like to thank my wife, my kids, my mom, and my agent, if I had one. Be sure to tune in to next week's Let's Talk 10. And please, keep telling your friends about the show. See you soon.